welcome to episode 154 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Sunday 9th of April 2017. I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com and I've got to give a heads up on today's audio. It sounds like one of the guests is underwater. We think this was due to a dodgy internet connection. Sorry about that. Now, let's get on with the show. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, everybody. It is Sunday, April the 9th, and this is episode 154 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. We did have a space visitor. That was Jim Moss, who we were trying to patch in. And unfortunately, all we could hear was this weird, weird static. And he could hear us. We couldn't hear him. So he's off the show. We booted him off. We're very cruel on this show. Uh, but joining us uh, today on this this fine summer's day uh, is rick vosper uh hi there rick rick are you there hello from the uh, swamps of arkansas yeah where the, uh, <clears throat> i am here so we, we we're maybe the having a shining and the puppies are hushed we are having a few audio problems with you rick we know that and we are going to persevere so you are not the swamps of, of, of Arkansas. You're not actually underwater here. We are. We think the diagnosis might be patchy internet. Yeah. Uh, and we have in pristine audio here. We have Donna Tochi. How hi Donna. Well, hello there. I don't know what you're talking about summer though, because summer hasn't ah. quite arrived to New England yet. But ah. um, it is a nice spring day here in New England. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That that's I think that's me being very Brit centric. Then in that we've had the warmest day of the year so far, and it's been beautiful. I have been out on my bike already today. I had a puncture. I didn't get very far because the tube that I had oh. with me also had a puncture. So I just came back. Uh, anyway, to be with you all on uh, on this uh, fine spring day. You're quite correct, Donna. So let's let's get into the show, and we have we want to start the, the show with with two RIPs, which incredibly sad uh, to have to report. So uh, during the week, uh, we lost two cyclists, and that was uh, Steve Tilford, former cyclocross uh, star, former mountain bike star, a, a kind of a somebody who's been around for a long time and was just getting better from from all accounts at at, at racing in his in his older years uh and then we had uh the sad news from australia where ultra distance rider mike hall was we don't know the full details here but mike hall was somehow hit by a car during a a, a race and uh, the race was then clearly cancelled it was an unsupported long distance 
race. And he had, Mike had said a couple of days beforehand on his Twitter feed that in this particular area, unfortunately, he was getting lots of close passes. So potentially uh, that could be one of the reasons why um, he was, was struck and killed. But Donna, you wanted to to patch in here on that. You, you've been following the news on Mike Hall's uh, collision and you're saying that the the authorities seem to be taking it seriously. Well, from all I've read, and it's, it's a terrible tragedy in both cases and um, for their families and friends first and foremost, but, but also for the industry. And I know that's how I learned about both um, passings was through industry friends on, on social media and just wave of sadness going through um, everyone. But um, the the thing that, that I've been reading with Mike is um, that it really seems, from what I'm reading um, anyway, that the authorities are really taking this seriously and have promised a full investigation and won't really talk about anything until they do a full investigation. And I thought, mm. you know, we we often talk on this show about how cyclists being hit maybe isn't taken so seriously. And it sounds like um, that in this case it is. So I'm glad for that. I'm glad for his family and and for cyclists in general that, that this is taken so seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do have to talk about these things way too we often, and we have talked about close passes. It is it is a thing out there that some motorists, for whatever reason, don't seem to recognise that somebody on a bicycle is a human and requires much further distance when overtaking. Now, uh, Steve Tilford uh, wasn't uh, killed on his bicycle. He was actually killed in uh, a collision when he was in a, a motor car. Um, uh, Rick, you wanted to say something about about Steve. You, um, he was indeed. In fact, Steve had had a couple of very unfortunate uh, crashes in the last year. But let's back up a little bit. For those who are not familiar with Steve Tilford, he was a promising young man, began racing at age 14, won a bunch of national titles, uh, mostly in cyclocross, but also in mountain bike racing. He's a member of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. And of as much interest to us in the United States is that he was a longtime commentator and industry gadfly, talking about what was right with cycling, what was wrong with cycling. Since he had no employment in the industry, he had no financial ties to the industry, he could say pretty much whatever the heck he wanted, and he did not hesitate to do so. So in this particular case, his, his blog was very well read and very respected by lots of people in the racing community and in the industry. He was one of the first to call out the rise of doping uh, in road racing as well as in cyclocross. And uh, as I say, widely respected. About a year ago, he was in a horrible crash where he was uh, on a local ride and sprinting for a city limit sign or something. A, a dog ran out in the uh, uh, in the course. Uh, he crashed, went down on his head, was in a coma for a couple of days. Very unfortunate. Now, as I say, less than a year later, he's driving with a friend of his uh, to the airport, and there is a, a freak accident. There's a semi truck that has skidded and turned perpendicular 
or to the road, so it's completely blocking the highway. They stop. There's a minor accident uh, in, involving them banging into the truck, but they've slowed down enough that no one is injured. They get out to examine the damage, and another semi-truck comes along and just smashes them. So uh, his, his friend, uh, Vincent Davis, uh, escapes with injuries. Tilford is killed on the spot. Uh, pretty horrible story. Mm. But this is a man very much admired, especially here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very sad news. Uh, sorry to have to report that. Um, it's always difficult to, to, to segue away from anything like that, but segue we have to to do. And uh, that is the story that, uh, well, everybody's been talking about this for for many, many years, since at, at least 2011. And now I know it's big news to, to you guys in America, uh, and that is because it potentially shakes up the industry, um, does all sorts of different things maybe, and that is Canyon, uh, the German brand from Koblenz, which is uh, now much, much closer because they've actually appointed staff, they've got HQ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're coming to the... Uh, to the US so Rick they have been talking about this for a long time they do appear to now be about to to, to open up and they're building up stock etc so how much of a of a, a shake up is this going to be for the for the US industry it's true uh, as, as you point out we've had reports on this in the cycling media since 2011, that Canyon is going to set up in the United States. And, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? The sky is falling. I wrote a uh, rather long piece about this for Red Kite Prayer called The Elephant in the Room, uh, where it talked about the moves of other major bike brands, including Trek, to direct fulfillment to their products, where consumers could order Trek bikes online, have the bikes delivered to a Trek retailer. Retailer assembles the bikes, takes them to the consumer's house. Why is Trek doing this? Well, one reason why is they anticipate Canyon coming, and Canyon is finally here. So uh, uh, Canyon Bicycles GmbH has made several hires here in the United States. They've got offices in San Francisco. They seem to be getting ready to do stuff. They say they're actually going to begin shipping bikes this summer. But right now it's the middle of May, so this summer is not very darn far away. Mm. One of the interesting things is they have recruited a fellow named Blair Clark as the president of Canyon U.S. And Blair is probably not well known outside of the industry, but he has an absolutely sterling reputation. He was the president of Giro Helmets for years and years. He was the, uh, the director of North America Sales for Specialized Bicycle for years and years. He was at Goo, the uh, nutrition company. Mm. Uh, he has a great reputation for establishing and maintaining powerful brands. He is extremely knowledgeable about what it takes to make sales channels work in the United States. And he uh, has great clout within the industry itself. And he has a link there with People for Bikes, too. Yes, yes, he's a P4B person, along with everything else. Now, I knew Blair when he was uh, just a guy working at a shop floor at a shop called Bicycle Outfitter in Los Altos, and uh, I've probably known him 30 plus years. But uh, he's been around the block. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Donna, you were going to say something. Was, yeah, it was interesting to me as I was reading the piece um, 
that not only has Blair been around the industry, but they have hired other folks from customer service to marketing to all of that um, who have very strong ties in the cycling industry. So they kind of went around and cherry-picked, I think, a few a few folks who have um, experience on race teams, with IMBA, with track. Um, it was it was quite an interesting who's who um, of folks with with experience all around the industry and different parts of the industry too. So they bring some very valuable insights from different perspectives. So it'll be interesting to watch, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll um, mention a disclaimer here, and that is uh, I've got a Canyon bike coming to me in on Tuesday, probably. So I'm getting one of their high-end mountain bikes to, to have a ride ah. on because I'm doing a, a piece for Bike Mag. So nice. Nicole, who is on the show sometimes, that's that's her mag. So I'm doing a piece uh, riding a Canyon bike for Bike Mag of America. And by the time it hits, it'll probably be the time that Canyon is actually available in the U.S. even. So even even better, maybe. Perfect for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I, talking about segueing, I'm going to segue away from the Canyon story. And that is talking of something... I know this is this has really surprised a lot of people when, when I did this story on Bike Biz. And that is, I did, I did two stories. I did one day, I did the bold facts. The second day, I did a follow-up. So the, the, the first day, the, the uh, Dutch industry organizations, uh, Rye and uh, Bovag, uh, they... Uh, commissioned uh, market report as they, they do every year and when you look at the, the the bold stats they have been declining in in bike sales in the netherlands for many years and it's actually at a 30 year low right now now unit sales are down but profitability and revenue is up because of electric bikes now the reason i'm saying people were surprised was because you know, the, the, the bikeonomics thing is, well, if you have loads of infrastructure, uh, if you build loads of infrastructure, then that is going to benefit the bike industry because you'll sell more bikes. And what this potentially, without going deeper into it, looks like is, well, hang on, this is a country with, with bike infrastructure coming out of their ears. And yet they're not actually selling the amount of bikes one would assume they were selling. The second day, well, the follow-up story is I interviewed a, a Dutch journalist, one of my ca- counterparts um, in, in the Netherlands, the, the deputy editor of Tvivila, and he told me some of the reasons why, and with that, that's in the, in, the, in the show notes. But Donna, are you, did that surprise you, that the bike sales in the Netherlands are, are low or, or getting lower? Yes, very much so. You know, and I read through the piece, it was a very good piece, by the way, and they gave a lot of reasons why that there was a tax reduction that had been taken away, that if you bought a bike, they would, you know, they would help you pay for it, um, that 2017 was a record year, so they knew it would go down from there. Oh, 2007. I mean, sorry, 20, yeah. 2007, sorry. That bikes last longer, so mm. people aren't buying them. The weather last year wasn't great in the spring. And then they went into the positives about, you know, people are cycling more often and for longer distances and 5% more are riding to the trains. And I thought, okay, 
they all sound a little bit PR-ish, mm-hmm. you know, that they are trying to spin this a little bit. But then at the very bottom of the piece was what really took this to heart for me and said, this is, there's something else going on um, that the independent bike dealers, IBDs, there were 15 years ago, there were 4,500 of them in the country. Now there are just 2,500 of them. And they're expecting that number to go down to 1,000 to 1,500. So you can say all you want about e-bikes and, you know, bikes lasting longer and all of that, maybe. But for the bike shops to not have that business and to be going out of business at that rate is really something that should make them take little notice. And is it because of some of these you can order anything online now or people ordering online? Are the bikes really lasting that much longer? You know, where people just aren't buying them. They're keeping the same bike for 10 or 15 years. I don't know. But um, but that was that was quite surprising to me as to how much of a reduction there is in the IBD. So, Ricky, you wanted to talk about the, the, the electric bike. And Donna mentioned electric bikes there, but you, you mentioned you wanted to mention much more about the electric bike side to those stats. She, she did. <clears throat> For the last several years, excuse me. <clears throat> For the last several years, the uh, electric bikes has accounted for over half of new unit sales of bicycles in the Netherlands. So there are products being sold, and people are buying them, so presumably they're riding these bikes. So it's, it's hard to see where where the drop in sales is coming from. And Donna has just done a really good job of walking us down the path. We got this, we got that, we got this other thing, but sales are still down. So there's a big question mark hanging over this. Well, where is the decline in sales coming from? She suggests perhaps it is bike shops, and that that's, seems entirely possible to me. But then we would still, if the dollars were coming from uh, internet sales, wouldn't we still see those dollars captured in the report? Mm. Yes, it, it, as far as we can gather, it's nothing to do with, with the internet as such. I don't think the Dutch market is impacted in the way that the UK and the, the US market has been impacted mm-hmm. on, on internet sales. So it is just the independent bicycle dealers are are dropping off at the same pace as they're dropping off in the US and in the UK and in most other places. And that's, 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 that's odd when you consider, you know, the Dutch as as a nation of cyclists and of any country should have a a very robust uh, infrastructure for bicycle shops. It should be, it should be the Netherlands. Right. And I think that's why it is so surprising to me anyway. Um, is because it is the Netherlands and to have a 30 year low, you know, for them to say that 2007 was a record, that's great, but this is a 30 year low. It's just very, very interesting Mm. and wonder what's really behind it all. I I will be, I think I'll have to come back to it again and again, because it's, uh, there's something, as you say, Donna, there's something else going on here. Um, what, what else is happening here that, that we need to, we need to examine and 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 look at this closer I, I just we haven't really looked at it before and it's just now it's a 30 year low and yet they're losing that many bike shops it's like hmm, okay we need well, to sure, and analyze. I wonder, yeah and i wonder if on the flip side are they selling more cars in the country now 
is this a generational thing where, you know, the millennials and the iGen, are they leaning more towards cars? They're not in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but maybe they are. Are people Ubering or lifting or something similar more often? Well, all the, you know, the, life life gets very hectic, and people don't have a lot of time. Cycling takes a little bit longer if you're going to commute that way, or, you know, go to your friends or something like that. And it's just easier to jump in a car. You know, it would just be very interesting to know if those types of things are also happening. Well, cycle usage stats have not fallen at the same rate, so people are riding tons. So in Amsterdam, you know, cycling is in still in rude health. Um, so it is just other things have been happening. So maybe it, there is a lot more to this on that. The fact that it could be these these very robust Dutch bikes, because they last forever, because they're so robust, you sell one and you won't sell another one for 60 years. And maybe there's something just intrinsically uh, not a very good model, the business model to be a Dutch bicycle dealer, because once you sold that Dutch bike, that, that robust gazella, you might not sell another one for an awfully long time. Whereas, shouldn't really be saying this too much, I suppose, but where we have more flimsy bikes, where you do actually replace them every few years, that it is a bit more of a almost disposable item, a bicycle, and you you will be owning multiple bicycles throughout your lifetime in, in other countries. So bike shops are selling more units throughout somebody's life. Rick, is that something that chimes with you? I'm not so sure whether whether that's the case. In the United States, it is true that people buy new bikes fairly often. In fact, one of the big questions that's been hidden in the data is what happens to all the used bikes. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a very significant portion of bicycle sales in the United States are from used bikes, where the the price of a bike, the, the sale price of a bike will drop by 50% within the first year of uh, the bike being initially purchased. That makes it tremendous value for people who don't want to pay full boat. The, uh, whether that's happening in the Netherlands, who knows? Uh, traditionally, as you say, those those incredibly tough gazelles last for years and years, and you see bikes out in a uh, uh, along the bike paths and locked to various uh, you know, poles and so forth that, that are easily as old as I am, and that's pretty old. <laughs> but uh, were they making bikes yeah, back then? We just don't see that in the United States. Yeah. Well, yes, there were crude former bikes way back then. <laughs> yeah, these wooden wooden running bikes. Yes, those, that's the ones <laughs> we had those, and then we graduated to the ones with the huge, huge front wheel. <laughs> Even you are not that old, Rick. I know this. Oh, okay. Well, maybe not. Okay, Rick, I- I'm going to stop you there, and I'm- we are going to uh, quit for a-, a break, and David will-, will-, will tell us who the show sponsor is, and we'll be back in a minute. Hey, everybody. Sorry to interrupt the show, but this is David, and I wanted to jump in and tell you about this week's show sponsor. And of course, it's none other than Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Jensen USA is the place where you will find everything, nearly everything, at least for your cycling lifestyle, whether it's road biking, mountain biking, commuting, fitness, you name it. 
they've got what you're looking for. And all of those products are available at incredible prices. And most importantly, something that we've all come to crave here in 2016, 2017, unparalleled customer service. That's because if you call or email Jensen USA, you're not just going to get some customer support rep who really doesn't understand you and your cycling life. No, these are gear advisors and gear advisors are cyclists just like you and me. And they live the cycling lifestyle and they've tried so much of the products that are available on Jensen USA. And they've got amazing training. They're there to help you. They can tell you what works and what doesn't which products go together and which don't. And you can tell them a little bit about what you're looking for and they can definitely point you in the right direction. And on top of all of that, Jensen is offering new customers who are referred to them by the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast one item at 10% off. So, I mean, you know, don't go use that on a water bottle. Go buy a bike. Go buy a new suspension for Buy something expensive. Now, some brands don't participate in promotions. And so if you see a message in your checkout that says no qualifying items in cart, go back and find something that qualifies. And then when you check out, simply enter the code, the spokesmen, no spaces, plural, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off one qualifying item. That's Jensen USA, J-E-N-S-O-N, USA.com slash the spokesman. And even if you just call him, would you do us a favor and let him know that you heard about Jensen right here on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Our thanks, our great thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman and our thanks to you for supporting Jensen USA. And now back to the show. And we are back uh, with the show today. Uh, we did try and get uh, Jim back on. Uh, he's tweeted me to say I'm teasing him. He's, he's obviously got issues with his, with his Skype there, um, so we haven't been able to bring him on. But we have got Rick underwater, um, and we have got Donna, uh, the, the, the pristine, who's got wonderful uh, audio. And uh, I'm Carlton Reed, and we are recording this on Sunday, April the 9th, and it's uh, episode 154. So we started uh, the show uh, on, on a sad note uh, with, with uh, Mike Hall, who was sadly uh, killed and struck on his bicycle. And I'd now like to talk about uh, another sad story in that uh, a guy called Michael Mason, a teacher, he was 70, uh, very keen cyclist. He was cycling uh, along Regent Street in London. It was, I believe it was, um, it was early evening. He had flashing LED lights on and a woman driving in the same direction on Regent Street. And it, it, Regent Street isn't a, a road, if you know it, that you can go terribly fast unless you're going absolutely mental. But apparently she wasn't going very fast. She just didn't see Michael. She struck him from behind. He was killed. The Crown Prosecution Service uh, refused to prosecute the woman, even though she admitted she hadn't seen him. Um, and what happened was the, the cycling charity in the UK, which is called uh, Cycling UK, uh, which was formerly the Cyclist Touring Club, uh, They've got this fund called a Cyclist Defence Fund, which uh, actions things if, if uh, things need to be actioned for, for cyclists. So they, they crowdfunded a prosecution and they raised, it was 100,000 
dollars in order to uh, actually raise a, a, a private prosecution to bring this this motorist to to trial. That went to trial, and uh, the, it was a jury trial. And seventeen minutes uh, after the jury was was told to come up with a verdict, they came up with a verdict, and that verdict was not guilty. Now, to find somebody not guilty after 17 minutes who had totally said that she hadn't seen the cyclist in front of her and he came out of, of nowhere struck most people, most cyclists, as pretty darn weird. Donna, what do you think about this particular case? Well, we started the show with another sad story or two sad stories and we mentioned that, or I mentioned that, you know, in the Mike Hall case, that the authorities seem to be taking this very seriously. And I was happy to hear that because this story, when I saw it, and I haven't been following it right along since this happened in 2014, but just reading about it today, it just seemed very flippant. And I don't know if that's the right word or not, but that... I'm, I'm not sure how the investigation was done. And reading this, when she said she didn't see the man who was illuminated, and you have to wonder now where there's so much distracted driving going on. Was she looking down at her radio? Was she, you know, and I'm not saying she did anything on purpose. I'm That, that would be a whole other issue. But um, that it just seemed kind of quick, the whole thing. I don't know. And again, not not knowing all the facts, obviously, but it just seemed very fast, a very fast verdict. Was the investigation done really well or not? If there there couldn't have been any doubt to come back in a 17 minute verdict. But to say you didn't see somebody who was illuminated and on the road with you, that just doesn't seem to be correct. And that's only my opinion. And Jim is not here to keep me out of jail. But that is just my opinion. <laughs> to, to give you a little bit of a background to the, the, the legality of these things, they, they went for careless driving, which is a notch underneath dangerous driving. Careless driving is all you've got to, to be um, found guilty on careless driving is just falling below the standards of what you would expect of a normal driver. It's incredibly, you would think it should be incredibly easy to get somebody prosecuted who's killed somebody and who said, I didn't see them, because surely that's a de facto admission that you haven't been paying the sort of attention that a normal, competent driver should be paying. So my worry here is that this is a jury trial in which the jury potentially is made up of fellow motorists who will be there but for the grace of god go i in other words well they're not cyclists they 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 are not looking out for cyclists so they believed the story that well the cyclist just appeared out of nowhere when in fact the cyclist was in front of this particular driver and she's admitted she didn't see somebody in front of her so that ought to be open and shut case, which is why the, the, the prosecution was was crowdfunded and brought in the first place. Rick, is this something that... Oh, it's Donna, sorry, were you going to say something? Well, there? I don't think it has... It, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. 
whether it does or not. But it shouldn't have anything to do with whether the jury is all motorists or not. It should go on fact and what they're hearing in the courtroom. And I just wonder if the case was made well enough to them about her being distracted or her not, you know, not driving well or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Was that case made well enough for them? You know, somebody who's illuminated on the road with you and you don't see them, there's a problem and you hit them from behind. Mm-hmm. They didn't just come out of nowhere. You hit them from behind. So, but that's why I said what, what kind of investigation was done and were the facts presented well enough for this jury, whether they are cyclists or not. They had to go by facts, mm-hmm. I would hope. One would hope. Rick, what's your take on this particular, this, not this particular one in, in exactly, but just in general? I am completely with Donna on this one. The, if uh, For those of us who are cyclists, which is probably everyone uh, making or listening to this podcast, we've all been in the situation where the driver, the motorist says, oh, I didn't see you. And you say to yourself, wait, I'm this fully adult-sized person sitting mm. on top of a bicycle, riding, wearing bright clothing, or I'm lit up with this night or whatever it is. How can you not see somebody like that? It's as if they run their boat, their car into another car and they can get off by saying, oh, I didn't see that car. Mm. So when you're driving, you're responsible for seeing the things around you. It's the same with a pedestrian. The pedestrians are a little harder because they have to go up onto the sidewalk to get the pedestrian and maybe the pedestrian is crossing in a crosswalk. Mm. Even so... Uh, you've got to be able to see things if you want to have a driver's license and continue to drive. Mm. What I do find interesting about this is, obviously, you have a crowdfunded prosecution. The people who raised the money and contributed to the crowdfunding obviously thought this was an open and shut case. They'd be able to get a conviction. And what happened? It, it's It's worrying. It is definitely worrying that a jury, and the 17 minutes is, is, is also worrying in that that's, that's almost too, well, it is too quick. How on earth can you come out of somebody's being killed after only 17 minutes of discussion? That's, that's almost unheard of to come out that quick. It's very quick. Uh, I don't know quite how you do it in the UK, in the United States, but the jury hears the evidence, they recess, they go into a jury room, they have to elect a foreman or a foreperson from within the jury and, you know, get to know each other and, and sit down and talk about how they're gonna how they're gonna deal with this issue. That's fifteen minutes right there. Mm. So it sounds very much very likely that the jury got together, they sat down, they took care of the administrative side of things and said, Okay, this lady's not guilty. Let's go back in and, and deliver the verdict to the to the court. Hmm. So definitely, definitely worrying that juries yeah. can can take this kind of stance. Very worrying. So let's well, move on it also to. Sets a it also sets a precedent, which is now 
if you've struck a cyclist mm. and a loud defense is, oh, I didn't see him or I didn't see her. End of story. Go on about your business. Mm-hmm. And this is um, this is very prevalent in the United States, and hopefully mm. I thought it was less prevalent in the UK and in Europe. Well, and, and like I said, though, there is some responsibility on the side of the folks that are doing the investigation and to make a case. So it's not always just the jury, you know, playing devil's advocate here, that the authorities need to take these seriously. And I think some very much do, and others don't. You know, it's, it's, it's just not. It's not seen as as something that is outrageous, and it should be. Mm-hmm. Well, it's to do with transport cycling and, and the sometimes the pitfalls of transport cycling. And one of the things that the UCI is trying to do is make cities safer for not just roadies and for uh, mountain bikers and for other people going fast on bicycles but also for just the everyday cyclist and that is that this story where the USA is, is basically relaunched itself in uh in in last week in in a, in a program which it's it's had before but it is now made into uh, much much deeper uh, push on this on on cycle advocacy and wanting to become in effect the world's uh, cycle advocacy organization so for people for bikes but for but for the world um, do we think the UCI's cycling for all manifesto has got legs how about from a PR point of view Donna do you think this is good PR for the UCI sure I mean anytime that you are trying to promote cycling and keep people safe and healthy and all of that there there is no downside to that um you know it's the uci so i i have my skeptic hat on but for a pr move it's absolutely a great thing and the right thing to do um safety and and health and all of that is um should be paramount and if they truly are helping cities to become more friendly cycle friendly and all of that I applaud that very much. Rick, might you have more of a cynical cap on, on, on the fact that it's the UCI? <laughs> more, more cynical than me. I always have a cynical cap on with regard to the UCI. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll work together on this, Donna. There's a, the plain fact of the matter is the UCI's uh, customer base is crumbling. Although some large races continue to do very well. We just finished the Ferry Bay this morning. It's extremely well attended. The media rights are huge. At the levels of the individual countries, things are not going quite so well. In the United States here, and since I'm an American, this is the market I know, we just had a coaches convention for all the USA cycling coaches uh, in, oh, geez, it was uh, early, earlier this year anyway, and the big topic was how are we going to bring more money into USA Cycling? We've got to have more more customers. Can we extend racing programs and licenses to people who are what we would have formerly called citizen racers that basically are going to go out and have fun? Uh, that doesn't seem to be a huge source of revenue. They're now offering roadside assistance as accident insurance or, or as a, 
uh, event insurance, where if your bike breaks down, you have a insurance policy carried through the UCI or through USA Cycling, and someone will come out and help you fix your flat tire, whatever it is. They've got other programs like this, and this is just one more. We're going to get into the uh, business of now, exactly how does this work? The business of securing transport cyclists, commuters, uh, recreational riders, uh, and are they then, uh, uh, Carlton, going to go to individual towns and cities and set these programs up? Or are they just going to take a fee and they'll issue you a sticker that says you're a, a cycling safe town? How does that work? I don't know. Well, can I jump in there? Hmm. I, Rick, you, you hit right the nail on the head with what I was thinking is that, um, is there a fee for this, for all the cities? I'm sure there is. And, um, that's where my my cynical piece jumps Mm. right in and says, you know, is how much of a moneymaker would this be? What do the cities really need to do to get the sticker other than write a check, um, and show one or two things? I don't know. So you're bringing the cynic out in me, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Let me become even more cynical since you invited me so kindly. When we look, there is a huge push among cities within the United States to become rated bicycle safe or bicycle friendly, which are awards given out by the uh, People for Bikes and the uh, 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 League of American Bicyclists. In fact, there's a whole cottage industry Mm. in getting cities ready to be certified as bike safe or bike friendly. Driver for this is large companies here have figured it out that when they move to a new city to set up business, they want to move someplace that people will want to move to to become their employees. Specifically, they're looking looking for young, tech-savvy, well-educated folks who are going to come in. And what kind of town do they want to come to live for, to go to work for Toyota or IBM or whoever it is, well, one of the things they want is cycling-friendly cities. So it's a big motivation, a financial motivation for cities and towns to make themselves more amenable to cyclists in order to get large companies to locate there. This has been going on for about 10 years. And there are other, there are other indicators uh, that are also interesting. Uh, uh, for young folks they're looking for, uh, they like ethnically mixed communities and so forth. There's a bunch of different standards that look for, and this is all, if you're interested, there's a fellow named Richard Florida, Florida, like the U.S. state, who has a series of books out called The Rise of the Creative Class and so forth. They'll have the word creative class in them. They're talking about what's the impact of these young, educated uh, people on the economy. What are the economy, what are the impacts are they want want to live in places where there are certain kinds of things, and one of those things is bike-friendly. So in a very real sense, cities are willing to pay money to be certified to be bike-friendly. So we are being cynical here. We are, we are like just we're thinking, kindred spirits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the last time I was at the UCI, and this, is, this was a, a, a few years ago, uh, the HQ in Eagle in Switzerland, uh, the the board outside, like saying, you know, who we are and what what this fancy spaceshipy building is that you're coming into, actually said, and it was very very uh, prominent when when I saw it. And it was like it, it, it really 
struck with me. And that is, it says uh, the UCI represents billions of cyclists around the planet. And of course, back then, absolutely, they didn't. But now they are clearly playing uh, to become that organisation. And they, 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 they maybe want to genuinely be able to say, for cash reasons, it, 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 it might appear, uh, from our, um, our, our cynics, uh, that they're doing this for cash reasons. And, but they believe that they're representing billions of cyclists when they talk about cycling as transportation rather than just for racing. I'm not really sure the UCI speaks for billions of people. How's that for cynical? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they they don't even speak for the racing cyclists. Remember, the UCI was the original <laughs> cyclist union mm. for professional bike racers, and they got themselves into the then organizational promotion business. <clears throat> uh, and so the uh, racers actually got out and created a, another union that actually represents them. And the only thing that's prevented the UCI from raging like wildfire through the streets of every town in the, in the world is uh, ASO, the other race organization that sort of held them in check mm. from the hegemony of the uh, World Tour program. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that we should revisit a few months down the road and see if they really are doing good work. Or if it's a moneymaker, you know, if you, like you said, are they, Carlton, are they going to put in programs? How, how is this going to work? I'm trying to be nice. I I just want you to go on record. I was trying to be nice. Yeah. And are they going to be putting in (laughs) staff? Are they going to be putting in people on the ground, actually pushing for these things? So, I mean, I, if you actually, there is a Twitter feed. Um, So when I did the story, uh, on ByteBiz, then the Twitter feed, which has it has been around for a while, in fact, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, then followed me. So they have got some staff that are dedicated to, well, the Twitter feed as a bare minimum, but it will be interesting to find out, is it more than just a Twitter feed? Is it something that whether actually programs could be putting in place where they will in, be investing their own money as an organization to put people on the ground to do this and if they do that then maybe they can then charge for their services as well but if they don't actually do that and all they're doing is is in effect charging for a sticker so a city can apply to have this sticker then maybe the cynics uh, here uh, will be right to be cynical so yes donna we, that's good point we should we should track them in a few months and see what actually has happened with this this particular program And that seems to have quietened everybody down. So that must mean that... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're trying to give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, although Rick and I are very much in the cynical camp. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because of their history, isn't it? it? They they have had a history uh, of of making people like us be not quite so uh, ready to to go with everything they say. Would you say that's, that's fair? Very. On that that's, note, that's more than fair. That's, more than fair, uh, thank you. On on that note, folks, I think that is a wrap for today. So, as we uh, do every 
show every close off we go round the table and we find out from the people on the show where we can find them when they're not on the show so i'm going to go to rick first rick how can people find you in your normal life <laughs> uh, i'm at rick underscore vosper on uh, twitter and I'm also on uh, Facebook under my regular name. And uh, I had an interesting experience. My website was uh, was hacked and infected with horrible malware, and I had to tear the entire thing down. So currently, there is nothing at rvms.com. I hope to have something else soon. Oh, bummer. Oh, goodness. So you're able well, at to... least my web stream wasn't hijacked like the cycling disk. Yeah. <laughs> So, so just just fill us in because you said you said you saw that happening real time. So Cycling News somehow was hacked, and then you saw all of the the, the news ticker being taken over. But what was it taken over right. by? Uh, it was just advertisements for small household products. Hmm. Well, it's not no longer there. So they clearly, as you've been able to rescue yours, they've been able to rescue theirs. Uh, Donna. How can we get in touch with you? I am on Twitter at Donna Tosi, T-O-C-C-I, all one word. Um, and I am also on Instagram, same, Donna Tosi, although there you will see more of my Siberian Husky and some Bruins and my nieces. So that's that's more personal, but it is open so anyone can follow along. So I am in both of those places. Wonderful, thank you. And I'm Carlton Reed, and I'm Carlton Reed on Twitter, and I've probably got an Instagram somewhere, no doubt. Not going to pose much to it, and uh, but most people can get me on bitebiz.com. So this has been show uh, 154 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Rick, I am going to come to you afterwards and ask you to send the, the link for that Red Kite Prayer article you mentioned. And that's a plug, really, for oh, the sure. fact that we do have... Uh, show notes so anything that we've talked about in the show today is in our show notes which is the <laughs> dash spokesmen.com um so everything we've been talking about today if if the, you want to find out more about it then clicky clicky um including that red kite prayer article uh which was on canyon yes rick yes actually there's there's two pieces to the article and i'll send links to both of them Wonderful. So once you've sent them to me, put them into that. We have these show notes that we all kind of like contribute to a Google Docs. Uh, then it goes into the, the, the show notes on the WordPress, uh, the, the, the blog posting, basically. So thank you very much for listening. Thank yeah. you for subscribing. Thank you, as David always used to say, uh, for telling your friends about the Cycling uh, Roundtable podcast from us spokesmen and spokeswoman. So uh, that has been the show for today and speak to you next time. 